It is always sweet to hear of uh, God's work of grace. He, uh, in one sense, he works the same in all of us, turning us to Christ. And yet, our individual stories and how he does that is unique. And uh, so, Vincent, praise God for uh, his work of grace in your heart and life. Thanks for sharing and uh, for following the Lord in, in obedience there. We rejoice with you. Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in prayer. Well, Father in heaven, we cry out to you because you are a holy God and we recognize that we, on our own, looking at our own lives and our own deeds, are unholy. We have, even this week, Father, we have chosen the path of foolishness many times. We have looked for satisfaction in the things of this world and sin and rather than looking to Christ, rather than going to the fountain of, of living waters. Oh God, forgive us. We thank you that in Christ we can approach you. We can approach a holy God. We can call you Father because of what Jesus has done for us. And now as we look to Christ in the word, as we see him presented, may you give us eyes of faith, humble and contrite hearts, that we might live according to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when Jesus came on the scene and he presented himself to first century Israel, he came bringing a spiritual revolution. He came to bring something new, something different from the religious establishment at that time. As he said at the end of Luke 5, he didn't come to put new wine into old wineskins. He came to put new wine into new wineskins. He was going to switch things up. But you might ask hearing that, didn't Jesus come to fulfill the Old Testament? Wasn't he in line with what the prophets had foretold? I mean, this was a continuation of what was taking place, not a U-turn, to which you'd be right. He is fulfilling the Old Testament. But when I say that Jesus came to bring about a spiritual revolution and to bring something new, I'm particularly speaking to the religious uh, system at the time. Jesus came in a time of distorted religion. Israel had indeed sought to obey the law, the Old Testament, the Torah as they knew it, and they took the religious obligations seriously, but they had lost their way. In other words, the religion in Israel, as taught by the religious leaders in Jesus' day, was a false religion. So Jesus had to switch things up. He did this by pointing back to the scriptures. He made, did it by making bold claims about himself and by the way he ministered and reached out to people. And we're going to see this today in our passage. And I invite you to take out your personal copy of God's word and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 as we continue our verse by verse exposition of the book of Luke. Today we are opening in chapter 6, but it's been a while since we've been in Luke, and so I want us to give us a running start to help us understand where we're at in Jesus' ministry when we open here to Luke 6. 
It was in chapter 4, two chapters previous, that Jesus began his public ministry. He'd grown up there in Nazareth, and now he has burst upon the scene and beginning to fulfill his messianic purpose. And so he begins to go all around Galilee, the northern part of Israel, proclaiming and teaching the gospel of the kingdom. He, the king, had arrived, and it was time for Israel to follow its king. He began showing that the Holy Spirit was upon him, and thus he was the, the Messiah promised in those Old Testament passages who would be anointed with the Spirit. He made this unmistakable because he exercised demons out of people. He healed sick people. He caused hordes of fish to appear that weren't there previously. And he taught with, author with an authority the people had never heard before. And with this incredible display of power and teaching, he began calling people to follow him. He pulled Peter, Andrew, James, and John from their fishing nets and said to follow him. He called Matthew or Levi from his tax collecting business to follow him. And these men left everything to learn the way of the master, Jesus of Nazareth. And as Jesus was doing these things, they began to pull disciples to himself to follow him in his way. He began to draw the notice of the Pharisees and the religious establishment. You see, there's a new teacher. A new teacher who was poaching disciples in the Pharisees' hunting grounds. This was their territory. Who's this new guy? And by his popularity, he was vying for top dog in the area, and their spiritual monopoly was threatened by his presence. And so Luke records that the Pharisees begin taking interest in Jesus, and in fact begin shadowing him, starting in chapter 5, verse 17. And from that point on, the tension continues to build. The opposition between Jesus and the religious establishment continues to heighten. At first, they just turn and question among themselves. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Then they pulled aside some of his disciples and say, hey, what, what's Jesus doing over there? And then they begin to speak directly to Jesus at the very end of chapter 5. And in our passage today, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, this showdown reaches its climax, particularly over the issue of the Sabbath. Luke here in verses 1 through 11 records two incidences where the religious leaders accused Jesus of disobeying the law, particularly the law in regard to the Sabbath. Now after all this sparring back and forth, we're going to see who comes out on top. We will see what the Pharisees' response will be. All through this, we've seen them question and them uh, oppose at a certain level and Jesus responds, but we never get the Pharisees' response to what Jesus says. Here, we're going to see for the first time what they truly think. Well, let's read our text before us, and then we'll dive in to look at it together. Luke chapter 6, follow along as I read, verses 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, 
which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, as I stated earlier, at the end of Luke 5, the passage previ just previous to this, Jesus had told that the religious order he was bringing was a revolution, that it was something brand new. It was completely different than the rabbinic Judaism active at the time. The two systems could not be mixed. And here in chapter 6, Luke begins showing how that revolution was beginning. What is that newness looking like? What is this new wine that Jesus is speaking of? And so in our passage this morning, we are going to see three ways that Jesus revolutionized the religion of his day. And by doing this, we'll be challenged to make sure that we are truly with Jesus and part of his spiritual revolution. So let's begin by looking at the first way that Jesus revolutionized the religion of his day. The first is he read Scripture correctly. He read Scripture correctly. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 4. In this first incident, Jesus and his disciples are simply on a Sabbath day stroll, somewhat of simply walking together through the grain fields. It doesn't seem that they are on a mission going anywhere. There was limits in terms of distances they could travel on the Sabbath, so it doesn't seem that they were actually headed off to another town. Otherwise, they would have been accused of that as well. But simply seems that they are out on a walk. And as they were out and about, they were hungry. And so they began going through a grain field. This could be that they got off the beaten path to walk through the grain field. It could be that the path itself was going through the grain field. We don't know. But the disciples began plucking the heads of grain, rubbed them in their hands to remove the husk, and then they ate the seed or the fruit of the grain. Now, we aren't sure what grain it was. It could have been wheat or barley. Both uh, become ripe and ready to harvest in spring or early summer. Very well could have been one of those. This, act, this activity instantly draws the ire of the Pharisees. And as you remember, the Pharisees are a Jewish sect at this time. They were devoted to careful observance of the law, and they were in leadership throughout the country within the synagogue system. There was the temple in Jerusalem, and then there were the synagogues throughout the country which helped to lead the worship and order things amongst the towns throughout the country. And so they were the religious authorities that most Jews interacted with. When they thought of a religious leader, someone who understood the Bible, understood the law, they would think of the Pharisees and their associates, such as the scribes or the teachers of the law. 
And as we've noted, they, these religious leaders, have felt threatened by Jesus and his new way of doing things. And they've been following them. They've been keeping their eye on Jesus for some time now. And they're challenging him, pushing back wherever they can. They think that they have the upper hand. They think they know the law. They think they know the Bible better than Jesus and that they can catch him in disobedience. And because of their knowledge of the law, they think they have power over the populace, over the people. Who are you, mere citizens, to think you know the law? We are the ones that have devoted our lives to studying it. And so, but it's just a matter of time here before the people see who's truly the better lawkeeper, Jesus or the Pharisees. And we've got to ask ourselves, what are the Pharisees doing out here in this grain field, right? I mean, it's not like Jesus is in the midst of the territory where the Pharisees normally would be. Uh... And I think the best explanation is that the Pharisees are, are following close behind. They are shadowing Jesus and the disciples, just watching for anything that they can. In fact, they're following them out on their, Sunday, or their Saturday Sabbath stroll. You think of uh, hawks that are just kind of, or vultures, right, that are just kind of circling up in the air, waiting for something to happen. So they are circling Jesus and the disciples, waiting for something They're waiting for an infraction of the law so that they can fire their attack. And that's exactly what they do here. They go, aha, we caught them on something. And so they ask, look at verse 2, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, to understand this question and really what's going on in both of these events in our passage, we need to understand and the importance of the Sabbath in the law and Jewish life. We don't talk much of the Sabbath. We know it's there in the Scriptures, but it isn't necessarily a part of our daily life, and we need to understand the Sabbath, what the Sabbath meant for them. The Sabbath was instituted by God on Mount Sinai. You know the Ten Commandments? The Sabbath is one of those commandments in which God told them that they needed to rest and do no work on the seventh day. And this was modeled after Jesus, or sorry, modeled after God's work of creation in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2, God takes a rest on the seventh day from his work of creation. And that very example is brought forward in the Ten Commandments to say, this is why you must also take a break. God took a break on the seventh day, so you must take a break on the seventh day and not do any work. This work was not allowed so that people could rest, so that people could worship, so that people could focus on God, so that they could be physically and spiritually rejuvenated. God wanted his people, to not be about frenetic economic and agricultural activity seven days a week. Just go, 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 go in order to try to make an extra buck. He wanted them to stop, to pause, to reflect on who he was, and to be reminded that in all that work, their ultimate dependence is on God alone. They don't have to work that extra day because God will take care of them. Now, the Jewish law, as we have in the Old Testament, gave further detail about what should and shouldn't happen on the Sabbath, but the rabbis took it a step further. They didn't want to break the law on the Sabbath, and so they created extra regulations. In fact, 
uh, it was recorded later that they came up with 24 chapters written stipulating all of these regulations. And it's, it's been said that one man sought to study one of those chapters and it took him two and a half years studying exactly all that was laid out in that one chapter and yet there's 24 chapters. There were so many laws and rules that the rabbis came up with in order to control and regulate the observance of the Sabbath. You can imagine the environment that this would feel like for your average person in Israel at that time. It was extremely oppressive. You would have this sense that you're going around every Sabbath day. You don't want to take one step, touch one thing, because you might be breaking the Sabbath law at some point. Because it, it got into the minute details of life. And yet this was the duty that the Pharisees loved. They were the Sabbath police. They loved looking around, making sure that everyone complied with these rules. And they would watch for infractions. They would take pride in their own ability to know those regulations and to follow them carefully. And we see here, even in this text, the Pharisees fulfilling that duty of Sabbath police. Now, according to their regulations, Jesus and his disciples were guilty of four infractions. Four infractions. As one commentator said, that's a lot for one mouthful. <laughs> As they take one, one bite of food, they're guilty of four infractions. The first was plucking the grain. Simply breaking it off was considered harvesting. To rub it in their hand was threshing. To get rid of the husks was winnowing. And eating the grain was preparing food. Now, you might think that's ridiculous, and you'd be right. But according, again, according to the religious authorities of the day, this was a serious deal. But we have to ask the question, did they obey Scripture or disobey Scripture? They may have disobeyed the regulations of the rabbis, but did they disobey the Word of God? Well, Deuteronomy 23.25 is clear that people passing through fields are allowed to eat the, the, the produce that they find in that field. So they, it wasn't stealing what they were doing, at least. But the issue is the Sabbath. Can you do that on the Sabbath? Now, Exodus 34.21 is clear that there should be no harvesting and reaping, and planting and, and reaping that takes place on the Sabbath. There should be a break from that. But again, you've got to ask whether, did Jesus and the disciples, were they really partaking in harvesting here? That command seems to be given to those who are harvesting for their living. That this is what they do the other six days. And that now on the seventh day, they're also trying to squeeze out an extra buck and work and harvest some more grain. That's not the position of the disciples and Jesus here. They're not farmers who are just trying to get an extra day's work in. They didn't have a sickle. They didn't have tools. They were just simply grabbing what was there and feeding their hungry stomachs. Interestingly, Jesus does not respond by discussing that point, though. He doesn't say, well, if you turn back to the law, you'll see that we didn't actually break the law. Instead, he goes deeper. He goes deeper at the purpose of the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath for? What is the law for? And so he, and with that, he gets to the heart and the intent of the law. And so he points back to an earlier event in the scriptures, and we see this in verses 3 and 4. Look at Jesus' response. It says, And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? 
he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Jesus' reference here is to an event in David's life, one that you may or may not be familiar with. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David was anointed the next king of Israel, but Saul was still on the throne, and Saul was threatened by David, this one who was anointed king. And so Saul was hunting David, seeking to kill him because Saul didn't want this threat anymore. And so it's in the midst of David being pursued by Saul and Saul's murderous pursuit of him that he's seeking to feed and supply himself and his band of men. He's got <clears throat> disciples, as, you were, as it were, or, or uh, uh, mighty men who were fighting with him, and he's got to feed this, this small army. What is he going to do? And so it leads him to the priestly city of Nob, and David asked the priest there to feed them the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence, or showbread, was the bread consecrated for the priests. The law had stipulated that it was to be changed out every Sabbath, and the old bread that was taken off of the plate was able to be eaten by the priests, and that it was bread that was only there for the priests. And yet in this account, in 1 Samuel 21, David and his men are in great need. They're in great hunger. They need, they need sustenance. And so David asks if they could have that bread. The priest there uh, uh, the inquires of the Lord, asks God, and then he gives the bread to David and to his men. Now why did Jesus use this story? Why did he point back to this account? Here's his point. He's, his point is this, that one's interpretation of the law should not be so rigid that it allows for no exceptions. He says the ceremonial law was important, but in David's case, human need superseded that ceremonial law. The human need of simply needing to feed hungry stomachs superseded that ceremonial technicality. And so Jesus is saying that if it was appropriate for David to feed his men with the priestly bread, then it's certainly appropriate for Jesus to feed his disciples on the Sabbath. Again, fulfilling the human need that's there. And this, going back to the Old Testament, particularly David, the great uh, leader in Israel's history, is, is shrewd because it puts the Pharisees in a bind. They've got to make a decision. What are they going to do here? If they condemn Jesus, then they, then they also condemn David. You see, Jesus unites himself to David and says, "We're listen, we're doing the exact same thing David did. So whatever the Pharisees think of Jesus, they also then, by implication, have to think of David. And if they allow for David's case and go, you know, that was allowable, then they must allow Jesus' case as well. And so Jesus showed that he actually understood the true purpose of the Sabbath, whereas the Pharisees did not. The Sabbath was for the benefit of mankind. It was for the rest and enjoyment and rejuvenation of God's people. It was not for the suppression and for the, the starvation of God's people. It was to bless them. And so in that spirit, these, the disciples are eating and being sustained upon the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, that's okay. That's what God originally intended. But get this. The Pharisees' religious system 
had no allowance for taking care of people's needs. They cared more about scrupulous observance of all their regulations than whether anyone got a meal that they actually needed. They would let someone starve on the Sabbath than to give them a meal because they cared more that their rules were followed. They claimed, of course, to be following Scripture. Listen to us. We know the law. But they were actually following their own interpretations and their extra rules that they added to Scripture. But you see, it's easy for us to shake our heads and to wag our, wag our fingers at those Pharisees and to think, how in the world could they add to Scripture? How could they enforce those extra interpretations of the law upon other people? But it's easy for Christians to do the same exact thing. It happens in this way. Think about it with me. We want to follow the Bible. We study the Bible. We think about all that God tells us. We want to live according to God's will and his word. And so we see the commands that God gives us. And so based upon our reading of Scripture, we develop convictions about the best way to obey the Lord. We read a command or a principle in Scripture, and then we figure out a way to live that out. For example, someone might read the command in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. And to becoming convinced of wanting to obey that, they think about how they want to live that out, and they, and they say, based upon that text, they, they develop the conviction that says you shouldn't watch any shows or movies because they are ways of the world piping into your home. This is being conformed to the world by, by, by watching entertaining shows and movies coming out of Hollywood. Now, in this example, it's important to recognize the difference between interpretation, what the text means, and application, how we put the text into action in our lives. And this distinction is crucial. The interpretation of the passage is that Christians should not be conformed to the world. That is something that every Christian should be able to read the text and agree that's what that verse means. We should not be conformed to the world. That applies to everybody. But the application of that verse and that command, which in our hypothetical example is to cease watching any visual media, might and can be a legitimate application, but it's only that, an application. And there's a difference between the interpretation, what the text means, and the application of how it applies. But get this, we commit the error of the Pharisees when we fail to differentiate between the interpretation and the application. When we hold, we commit this error when we hold other people to our application instead of the truth or the principle in Scripture. When we start imposing the application that we have chosen and we believe is necessary, and we start imposing that application on everybody else, that is when we cross into the line of where these Pharisees were holding people to a standard that is above and beyond where Scripture outlines. And it's very easy for us to do. It's very easy for us to do. And it particularly happens in the gray areas of the Christian life, the places where the Scriptures don't speak immediately or black and white. That's why it's gray. There's the, there's the black and white, do this, don't do this, and then there's those things that happen in our lives that we engage in and we're like, what does God want me to do here? And there's some gray, and Christians can go different ways on it. There's Christian freedom for them to respond and obey differently in that, those circumstances. And so we can apply the Word of God differently in a certain area, and it's hard for us 
to see a Christian in the same context or same area to be living differently than us when we feel convinced that the best way to apply the scriptures is our way. You know, it's interesting that in the last 12 months, we've seen a lot of things within this gray area category that has caused Christians to go different directions in terms of opinions and convictions. And I believe that some of this stems from this very problem. What has caused some of this division is because we are holding one another to our applications of biblical commands rather than holding ourselves to the actual commands themselves. We've fallen into the error of the Pharisees when we think we are standing faithfully for the Bible, but we're actually more passionate about our application of the Bible than we are about the actual biblical principle that God commands us. And just to use one example, friends, as I believe is the Christian response to COVID-19 and all that goes around that. We know that Christians hold different opinions about how to respond to this pandemic and everything that is going on in our society and in our lives. And yet we've got to be clear, as we discuss this and as we seek to help one another to walk faithfully in this day and in this age, to separate out between what does the Bible truly command and what are simply our applications of those biblical commands. We can agree that the Bible has many factors, many principles that we need to factor into our consideration. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves. We need to consider others as more significant than ourselves. We need to take care of our family. We need to love those around us. But how to apply those principles and those commands has Christians diverging and has been in the midst of this these world circumstances. Some believe that to apply those commands and those principles means that we need to push back against governmental tyranny by having unencumbered uh, interactions with others and believing that the, the, the risk of contracting the virus is less significant than the spiritual, emotional, mental, and relational side effects of the measures that are being required. That's where some Christians believe the best to apply these commands. But other Christians would say that they believe that in order to best live out these commands that Jesus has given us is, is by complying completely with all the health guidelines that have been given to us, such as wearing masks and staying distant from people. But what we've got to see is that there's different ways of applying the same scriptural principles. And what we need to do in our interaction with one another is that we hold one another to the scriptures, making sure that we are, we are asking one another if we are truly following the word of God. That is what we care about. Are we obeying what the word of God has said? Not maybe some other application on top of that. Now, when we hold each other accountable to God's word, the environment is life-giving. But when we become a community of compliance police, holding people to our applications of the word of God, it's suffocating and it's oppressive, just like first century Israel experienced under the Pharisees. We've got to continue to strive for freedom in Christ, recognizing that we are gonna apply these things differently. And this is just one example, but it can go for a host of other things. 
Christians are really good at taking our opinions and convictions on how to apply something and imposing them on other people. Friends, may we seek to not commit the error of the Pharisees. Go back to what the Word of God says, read it carefully and correctly as Jesus did, and understand then where the freedom is and how we apply it. As Jesus stepped in and here read Scripture correctly and essentially taught the Pharisees on how to understand what he was doing, he was beginning to turn their religious world upside down. We see here he initiated this by reading the Scriptures correctly. He didn't impose an extra stringent law on top of the Scriptures. He followed the letter and the spirit of God's law truly. Well, that's the first way that Jesus brought about began to bring about this revolution was by reading scripture correctly. Let's look secondly. The second way he revolutionized religion was that he claimed lordship conclusively. He claimed lordship conclusively. Look at verse five. He says, and he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus lays down the gauntlet here because you see at the heart of this debate and the heart of this showdown was between the Pharisees and Jesus, who speaks for God? Who is God's official representative and spokesman? The Pharisees, up to this point, had sustained their spiritual empire in Israel by claiming that they were the true representation of God on earth. No one else rivaled that claim until Jesus came along. And here in verse 5, Jesus emphatically changed the conversation. He made it clear that this debate was not between two equals, two rival equal claims to being God's representative. This was not just a debate between two rabbis. Jesus was on a whole different level than these religious leaders. And so Jesus conclusively declares, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is only the second time that this title, Son of Man, has been used here in the book of Luke. The first time was in chapter 5, verse 24. It's a title that's favorite to Jesus as he describes who he is. Because you see, it's a claim to divinity and kingship that any Jew would know, but the Romans would not. And so, in other words, he could reveal his true identity to Israel, and it wouldn't cause the Romans around him to charge him with insurrection to think that he's claiming to be a rival king to Caesar. But this title comes from Daniel chapter 7, which reads, uh, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man is hearkening back to this passage in which he is saying, I am that one who is presented to, this, to the Ancient of Days, who, which is given a kingdom, and all the people serve him. There's everlasting dominion given to this Son of Man. And so Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, and I am Lord of the Sabbath. Being Lord of the Sabbath meant that he was Lord of the law. Because the Lord of the Sabbath means that he must be divine because who was it that gave the law in the first place? Who was it that gave the Sabbath in the first place? 
It was God, Yahweh himself, on Mount Sinai. And therefore, Jesus is equating himself with the one who gave the law. The only one over the law is God himself. And Jesus puts himself in that position. And so Jesus here silences his, his opponents by stating conclusively that he, uh, that he can do what he wants on the Sabbath because he has created the Sabbath. The Sabbath doesn't control him. He controls the Sabbath. Now we know that even though he's Lord over the Sabbath, he's not going to abuse it. He's not going to just tweak it for his own purposes. He will use the Sabbath as it was, was originally intended as we said, for physical and spiritual refreshment. But here, in the ultimate checkmate, Jesus definitively states that he is God's true spokesman. He is the representative of Yahweh, and therefore his word is to be trusted over these hard-hearted leaders who are standing off to the side. Folks, Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. He owns this universe. We are living in his world this means we should bend our ears to him as God's spokesman. We need to listen to him. It means that we should bow our knees to him because he is earth's rightful king. This means we should humble our hearts before him as the all-knowing God. He knows each one of us. He knows all of our ways. For us Gentiles, hearing that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath might not be too earth-shattering. But we need to put it maybe in another context to hear how it might have sounded to that first century audience. Consider the, these other implications of Jesus' lordship. For example, Jesus is lord of science and reason. He stands above science as the creator of it. Science and reason cannot uh, operate outside of his predefined limits. Science and reason don't control Jesus. Jesus controls science and reason. Or consider this, Jesus is Lord of politics and governments. He stands above every government and every leader. He instituted government and his will determines its scope. He's even Lord over the Constitution, any law created by man. These examples show how Jesus' claim to lordship are just as threatening to people today as it was in Jesus' day. Jesus is Lord. He stands over all, and all must bow and submit to him. So Jesus' revolution started as he read Scripture correctly. Secondly, he claimed lordship conclusively. And let's look now, thirdly, at that he ministered compassionately. The third way that he brought about this revolution was that he ministered compassionately. And we're going to see this in verses 6 through 11. Slide says 7 through 11. It's actually 6 through 11. Verse 6 starts us with a new scene, but it's a similar concern. It says, On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. The issue again is doing what is, is the issue of what is lawful on the Sabbath. What can be done on the Sabbath day? Because it says, verse 7, the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Once again, they're there watching. It's a different day, it's a different location, possibly even different Pharisees, but the issue's the same. 
Now, Jesus has just declared, verse 5, he's declared that, uh, that he is, has authority over the Sabbath. And here now in this account, in verses 6 through 11, he's going to demonstrate that he has authority over the Sabbath. In these verses, verses 6 through 11, we see the hearts of the two sides exposed. We see where the Pharisees stand and what they think of the people. And we see Jesus and see what he thinks of people. This time, Jesus is in control. From the beginning, he's teaching in the synagogue, verse 6 says. He's already there. He's got the microphone. He's teaching on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees come and begin to linger along the outside. Again, you picture the vultures circling. They're watching, looking to see what Jesus is going to do. This verb uh, in verse 7 that says the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees watched him means to study carefully. They were taking note of every movement to see that he does not slip in some little something that they will not catch. The scene here is as he's teaching, there's a man there with his hand withered, it says. We don't know how this was brought to Jesus' attention. We don't know if the man happened to walk in in the midst of his teaching. We don't know if he happened to reveal his sleeve in the middle of Jesus' teaching and realize that he had the withered hand. Some commentators have suggested that even the scribes and Pharisees brought the man with the withered hand there in order to create this scene. It's possible. The text doesn't say. But somehow it became an issue. Now it says that his hand was withered. We don't know what caused it. Was it an accident? Was it born that way? But the mus muscles had atrophied and, and it was, there's clearly something wrong with his hand. But the Pharisees were watching with great interest. And here, the drama is high, right? Jesus is there teaching, he's in control, and now there's something that forces Jesus to act. Either he's going to ignore the man with the withered hand, or he's going to heal, and the Pharisees are going to pounce. What is Jesus going to do? I think of this uh, like a, a lion that's pacing around the outer edge of a herd and looking for weakness in which it's going to pounce. But as they, they hope Jesus walks right into a trap and they, that way they can accuse him, the text says. But look at verse 8. But he knew their thoughts. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew exactly the tactic that they were trying to make. They weren't going to pull a fast one on Jesus. He knew what was going on. He knew what they were up to. And it's at this point, friends, we've got to be amazed at the courage and the command by which Jesus acts here. This is not the action of some coward. This is Jesus boldly and courageously facing his opponents and his enemies in the eye and moving forward with decisive action, not shrinking back in weakness, not being afraid of what they're going to think, but knowing that instead what God thinks is most important and he's going to step out boldly and act in that way. Because look at what he says, verse 8. He knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. Come and stand here. 
Jesus doesn't divert the conversation. He doesn't tell the man to step outside. I'll talk with you later. He says, we're going to make this an issue right now. Pharisees, you think that you've got the upper hand on me. I'm going to show you that I've got the upper hand on you. He says to the man, come and stand right here. And now, all eyes, the tension can be cut with the knife as everyone understands what's about to go down. The man with the withered hand obeys Jesus. It says, it says, and he rose and stood there. He's stood right in front of Jesus where all could see. And it's there with the tension high, silence with, uh, you could hear a pin drop, that Jesus then asks all those in attendance, but particularly targeted at the scribes and Pharisees, a key question. He says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And here Jesus strikes at the heart of the Sabbath law to which the Pharisees were holding to, holding everyone else to. He asks whether the law of God allows for doing good to others or not. Does the law tell us we should do good or does the law tell us we should do evil? In, in other words, in the original charter for the Sabbath, what God set up, did God intend for mankind to be benefited or harmed by the Sabbath? The Pharisees know the answer, but they don't change their position. Deep down, they would rather have the man live without healing than have their rules broken. Do you hear that? They would rather have the man live without healing than have their rules broken. They take greater delight in legalistic rule-keeping than in merciful healing. And it's here that the heart of ministry is exposed for the two sides. Who truly cares for the people? Who truly cares for this man? Jesus moves towards this hurting man with compassion, with love and mercy. He wants to do good. He wants to bless. He wants to heal. His default is to heal. He wasn't debating whether he was actually going to heal or not. That's, that's what he does. He saw the need. He moved towards the need. Jesus ministered compassionately. But the Pharisees, they carried on their ministry day to day out of self-preservation and self-service. Get this, they did not care for this man. They went in and out amongst the people all day, policing their law compliance. They thought their mission was to uphold the law, but what Jesus reveals is that if they really wanted to uphold the law, they would realize the spirit of the law is to give life and to benefit the people. This question here has been called uh, by one scholar the world's easiest theological question. Does the law tell us to do good or to do evil? It should be easy, but it silences the Pharisees. To say it's lawful to do evil would be ludicrous for them, and they would never, it's indefensible, and they never say that. And yet to say it's lawful to do good means that Jesus is in the right, and they have been neglecting a key point of the law. But these men are stone cold they want nothing to do with those who are ministering to hurting people. They do not want to help those in need. And so this causes Jesus to look around. To look around. Look at verse 10. It says, After looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. 
he takes a moment to scan the room. He's asked the easiest question in the world they should be able to answer. And he looks at them all with a piercing glaze to, gaze to see where they're truly at. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 3 that he looked around with anger because he saw their hardness of heart. Jesus is angry that these religious leaders, those who are upholding the law that he and his father has given, are not doing to benefit and bless the people that he loves so much. How dare they say that they're representatives of God's law? And it saddens him, it angers him at their hardness of heart. And it's here that we see this portrait of two types of religious leaders, two types of shepherds. Jesus, the true shepherd, who loves and cares for his sheep. And because of his love for them, he's protective and angry at all those who would prey upon his sheep, which is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. These Pharisees aren't shepherds, they're wolves. And so they, wolves, make bad shepherds, do they not? They are more concerned about protecting their power than they are for caring for the sheep. They've lived out what Ezekiel saw in his day. In Ezekiel 34, he says, The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. With force and hard harshness you have ruled them. Ezekiel's indictment of the shepherds in his day equally applies to the shepherds that were claiming to shepherd God's people in Jesus' day. These shepherds served themselves. They cared more about their power, their influence, and their about serving people. But Jesus came and revolutionized what a shepherd should be. He came to be a good, life-giving shepherd to his people. He loved and served the sheep. He loved them to the point of laying down his life for them. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is the good shepherd who ultimately lays down his life for the sheep. Here in Luke 6, Jesus unmistakably demonstrates his compassion, his power, and his authority before all there that day. He commands the man, stretch out your hand. The man obeys, and as he does so, his hand is restored. There's right then and there, they should have believed in Jesus. They should have seen the miracle of God and said, you know what? God is with this man. The Spirit has enabled this man to do things that no one else can do. Clearly, he's God's spokesman. Clearly, he's God's representative, and we must bow and worship him. But they don't. Here in verse 6, sorry, in uh, verse 11, we see the response of the Pharisees. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. After all this showdown, after all this where Jesus proves that he has the better way, that he's truly representing the Lord, they are furious. The word here refers to blind rage. They're so angry that they can't even see clearly, think clearly. They're just scuttering about in pure rage because they're so upset at what Jesus is doing. And so they begin to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. 
And we know what that means, as the course of the gospel is going to show, that they plot to put him to death. Again, I ask you, which group was seeking to do good and give life? The irony that Jesus is looking to heal and give life, and yet these so-called shepherds, upholders of the law, were actually seeking death of Jesus. They were blinded by their sin and their stubbornness to who Jesus truly was and what he offered. And this can still happen today. And I imagine that those, there are those here this morning and those tuning in who you've been resisting Jesus for a long time. You have never bowed the knee before Christ, submitted him and calling him Lord, repenting of your sins. Jesus is there. He might be a nice man. You've been around religion. You know there's some good moral things that you need to do. But see, following Jesus means submitting to him as Lord. He's not just a nice man. He's not just a good teacher. He is the Lord of all the earth. And either we bow our knees to him now, today, and find life in his name and eternity with him, life forevermore, or we hold on to our sin and our stubbornness and we reject the eternal life that he offers and we find that his wrath will come upon us one day. Only in Jesus can we find hope and forgiveness. And so Jesus calls us, calls for repentance and renunciation of our self-sovereignty, thinking that we can run life our own way and instead to recognize that we need Christ. So I ask you, will you repent of your pride and confess Jesus as Lord today? Find life in his name today. I think there's also a lesson here in this text for the church as well. Ministry must always be out of compassion for people. Mercy must drive our ministry. Rigidity to laws and regulations must never be our ultimate priority. By the same token, mercy does not mean that we throw out the standards of God's word. We seek to obey the Lord. We seek to love people. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. So we need to ask ourselves, do we have a heart of compassion like Jesus, seeking to do good through our ministry, not just maintain our power, our influence, or our reputation? So we've seen this morning that Jesus stepped into the religious environment of his day and he flipped it upside down. In contrast to the Pharisees, he read scripture correctly, he claimed lordship conclusively, and he ministered compassionately. And by doing this, he offered himself to Israel as the way, the truth, and the life. He is the same for us today. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but in Jesus alone. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, Father, I ask that you would please do your work of transformation in our hearts by your word. Cause us to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. I pray for those here who are still clinging to their self-righteousness, their self-sovereignty, thinking that they know the best way to live. Oh God, would you break them of their sin? 
Enable them to see that to continue to resist Jesus, to refuse to bow the knee before him, to him in all things, they are siding with the Pharisees, clinging to their own self-righteousness. Father, may you bring them life and repentance today. And we pray, Father, as a church, that you'd help us to hold to your word tenaciously, hold to our applications loosely, and enable us to, to minister compassionately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you are dismissed. May God be with you this week as we seek to live for his glory. You're dismissed.